The Dave Berta Podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. To hear more amazing Alberta-made podcasts, visit albertapodcastnetwork.com. I'm Dave Cornoyer, and you're listening to the Dave Berta Podcast. We're recording this episode on Saturday, March 7th, 2020, and we're joined by our producer, Adam Rosenhart. Hey, hey guys. How's it going? Good. And we are thrilled to be joined by our special guest on this episode, Dr. Elaine Hishka. Elaine, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a, it's a pleasure. Uh, Elaine is an assistant professor with the University of Alberta School of Public Health. So yeah, welcome, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So we've invited Elaine to come on the podcast and talk about the the very topical issue of supervised consumption clinics and the report that was released this week by the Supervised Consumption Services Review Committee. So first, before we get started, Elaine, I'm, I'm, hoping, I'm wondering, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and some of the work you've done around this area? Sure. So um, as you mentioned, I'm an assistant professor at the School of Public Health at the University of Alberta, and my research is really focused on finding public health solutions to the complex challenges posed by substance use in society. And so um, I do a lot of research um, and projects around um, healthcare, uh, um, community-based care, um, uh, hospital care, and also I'm really interested in the topic of drug policy and how we regulate substances in society um, and how we approach uh, controlling them and also... um, uh, um, reducing some of the harms that they can cause. Okay, so could you share a, a little bit uh, with the listeners about the history of of safe consumption clinics in Alberta uh, and maybe how governments have mm-hmm. approached them? Sure. So there's actually quite a long history um, around advocacy and policy in this space. Uh, probably around 2012, after um, the Supreme Court. Uh, issued a landmark ruling on BC's Insight. Insight is the most famous, probably, supervised consumption service in Canada. It's 12 booths in the downtown east side. Um, the Supreme Court ruled that uh, the federal government had tried to shut it down, and they ruled that essentially uh, there was no evidence to suggest it had any negative impacts on public safety and that there was strong evidence to indicate it was life-saving and that um, the service had to be allowed to continue if the province was funding it. And so um, after that ruling, I think there was a lot of people across the country that were really interested in what it could mean for other um, jurisdictions. And so there was a group of people that got together at Edmonton that started to discuss um, whether it could be a potential solution here. Uh, At the time, we certainly knew we had a big problem related to public injection drug use um, and also um, concern about HIV, hepatitis C, and a growing problem at that time related to overdose. So uh, there was a large community coalition formed with 25 um, organizations and we set out to collect data and understand um, what that could look like here. And at the same time, or a few years later, uh, other cities in Alberta started to do the same thing. Um, These efforts really ramped up probably in 2015, 2016, after the overdose epidemic really hit Alberta hard. Mm-hmm. And we were seeing just like devastating numbers of people dying uh, from overdose. And the province um, was continually, increasingly more open to potentially funding these services. And so um, we had already done a big needs assessment. We uh, collected data with 320 people who inject drugs in the inner city here. We interviewed dozens of stakeholder groups, um, consulted with tons of people about the services, and uh, we put forward a proposal to the province, and that was um, uh, accepted, 
I want to say in 2017 and then the, or maybe even end of 2016. And then uh, the services all started opening in 2018 in Edmonton. And at the same time, parallel work was going on in the other cities. Um, They were a bit behind us, but they had done the same kind of needs assessment process. And actually Calgary um, was able to mobilize a little bit faster and they got their first. So the Alberta's first SES opened um, just at the end of 2017. It was a temporary one that was put in the Sheldon Schumer parking lot, uh, like a trailer. And so between that time and now we've seen um, seven open in the city or in Alberta. So there's four here in Edmonton, uh, one in Calgary, one in Lethbridge, one in Grand Prairie and uh, an overdose prevention site, which is kind of a pared down SES um, operating in Red Deer. So, so you were involved with the like the advocacy and, and the work in Edmonton, but then you were also involved in a provincial commission mm-hmm. that the, the, the minister at the time appointed. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That was under the previous government, right? Yeah. So um, as a core member of the community coalition, I did a lot of um, stakeholder engagement, a lot of policy advocacy, and I was also um, frequently in the media talking about uh, you know the potential of these services to save lives. And I think um, as a result of those efforts, uh, the provincial government asked me if I would be willing uh, to consider co-chairing the minister's opioid emergency response commission. And so um, that was 60 million of new funding to be spent over two years. And our commission included 14 members originally. It grew a little bit after that. And uh, we made recommendations to fund a whole host of different interventions, um, SCS for sure, but also a lot of new treatment programs, um, prevention, uh, communication, uh, data surveillance. Uh, we gave over, um, it was over 30 recommendations that were all accepted by the province. And that work was from May of 2017 until um, November 2019 when we were disbanded. So when you, when you talk about SCS, so safe consumption sites, or I, I like to call them safe consumption clinics. I think it makes it probably sound a little more accurate, just more of a description than what it is to what it is. Um, is that because you hear a lot of talk about SCS, you hear a lot of talk about what's called harm reduction. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little bit about sure. what like the principles behind it are? Yeah. So, um, Basically, my whole career and my research is dedicated to advancing a public health approach to substance use. And in a public health approach, we talk about four pillars. Um, So the first is prevention. Obviously, if we can prevent people um, from initiating or delaying uh, substance use, alcohol or illegal drug use, then generally speaking, that's better for health. Um, Treating substance use disorders is um, providing people with different types of options so that they can reduce or um, moderate their use. Uh, Our enforcement is another pillar um, that's basically trying to uh, regulate the supply in a way that reduces risk to society. And uh, the last pillar is harm reduction. And so harm reduction is really acknowledging it's a pragmatic approach and it acknowledges that just like any kind of major behavior change that someone wants to make in their life, it can be very challenging and uh, not everyone you know, necessarily is ready to stop using substances or um, may not want to stop using substances. People do derive um, both benefit and harm from substance use. And so harm reduction recognizes that. It's pragmatic. And the idea is that um, you provide information and services to people uh, so that they can make informed decisions about their substance use. And um, if they continue to use that, they have the knowledge and tools required to reduce harms from that use. And so I always like to use different analogies, but it's not that different from the idea of like a seatbelt in a car, right? Driving causes many deaths every year. It's an inherently dangerous activity. Seatbelts recognize that people are going to drive. It's a practical thing. 
they derive benefit out of it. Um, and a seatbelt basically makes that activity safer. So um, major harm reduction interventions include things like, you know, in the kind of grad space, like if you ever had heard of a safe grad, right? Or the mm-hmm. idea of like letting... We, we, um, we had a safe grad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the, the idea the that... Community Hall in Busby. It was, you, uh, yeah. It was, it, was a, it was a gong show. Yeah. So the idea though is that um, your school recognize that there's a high probability you're going to drink alcohol, you know, after your grad. Mm-hmm. And so instead of having you do that in secrecy and, you know, potentially in a high risk situation, they wanted to put some parameters around that use to make sure that everyone stayed safe and um, stayed alive. So hard reduction is no different the idea is you know we give sterile supplies to prevent hiv hep c if people are injecting drugs mm-hmm. uh you know all kinds of different interventions um naloxone kits so if someone has an overdose um having a first aid kit that can reverse that overdose uh and supervised exception services fit under that pillar as well naloxone is like a is a word that's become pretty common mm-hmm. i think a lot of people will recognize it in a lot of workplaces and a lot of public centers now have training and access to, to naloxone mm-hmm. kits um, so is, is that kind of is that something that you saw come out of of like the work with with SCS and the work with harm reduction as as it became more common? Yes, yeah, it's a really core intervention for the overdose epidemic. Um, basically, we have like really good data that shows um, because st- substance use is so stigmatized in society, and also because it's frankly illegal, and you're you know subject to arrest if um, police know that you have drugs in your possession. Uh, Unfortunately, the reality is that many people, even if they run into medical emergencies or serious trouble, will not call 911 for assistance because they're afraid of being incarcerated or um, other negative ramifications. And so naloxone really developed as a way for people to be able to provide first aid to each other um, if they're unwilling or unable to call 911. And um, those kits, we've given out over 200,000 in Alberta. Wow. And many more across the country. And um, there's very strong evidence to show that they are life-saving and uh, first-line um, defense uh, for people who are uh, using substances and um, unable to get help, like medical help, if they overdose. So uh, Alberta moved in, in one direction. Uh, and you mentioned earlier Insight in Vancouver was kind of the, the if you want to call it the flagship, but the first kind of facility like this that, that to really get people's attention and, and, and start practicing this. Uh, this this type of uh, of of harm reduction. Um, what is your like? What what do you know? What the experience has been in other provinces mm-hmm. other than Alberta and British Columbia? Yeah, so there's approximately it changes kind of daily based on you know uh, federal exemptions, but there's about forty, maybe just over forty um, exempted services operating across Canada. Mm-hmm. So there are federal exempted services um, in Alberta, uh, in there's one exempted in Saskatoon that hasn't started operating yet. Um, Ontario has a number, like over 20. And what, uh, what do you mean by exemption? So basically to operate a supervised exemption service. Do, should we maybe explain what the one is? Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I talked about naloxone and the idea of people getting first aid or giving each other first aid. So supervised exemption services are... Um, designed for people that maybe don't have a place to use substances safely um, or, you know, don't have other people around them that can help them or provide aid. And so the idea there is that there is, a, um, especially amongst people who are uh, living in poverty or homeless, um, there's a large proportion of people who are, if they're using substances, they're um, potentially using them in public spaces. So that's things like alleys, parkades, bathrooms, um, basically places where it's um, not very sterile and there's no safety. 
uh, and typically no one is there to help you if you overdose. Um, so supervised consumption services are designed to provide a sterile and safe environment for people who are using illegal substances. And um, typically they're staffed by uh, trained employees, often uh, nurses, social workers, or um, people with like peer support workers. And basically they provide a monitored environment where people can consume pre-obtained illegal drugs and um, get medical help uh, if they run into problems. Um, in Alberta, all of the sites that have been implemented also include a host of ancillary services. So this is things like um, primary care, wound care, nursing, um, social work, uh, addiction counseling in many of them, as well as um, links to other services. So the idea is sort of like it is like a clinic in that way in that it does provide a gateway into the healthcare system for a lot of people that are really excluded from that system typically. Okay. And so you were talking about the experiences in other provinces. So, so you said there's one is opening in Saskatoon, or one. Or, yeah. So Ontario, BC, uh, Saskatchewan, and one in Halifax. Um, so there's that many that are exempted. No, I won't get into the nitty gritty because there's a, they're all regulated slightly differently. Um, okay. With some being kind of like the provinces, like BC kind of went their own way. And, just open a bunch without federal approval. Okay, um, it's very BC. <laughs> yeah. Approaching things. Yeah. Um, oh, and there's some in Quebec as well. Okay. Yeah. But essentially there's uh, just the federally regulated ones. There's um, over 40. And if we include the kind of provincially designated ones under BC in BC, there's over 60. Okay. So we've talked a bit about how the former government in Alberta, the NDP government approached this issue. Um, we had a change in government here in Alberta last year, last April. Uh, what are some of the key, key, key characteristics or key ways that the new government, the UCP government, has approached this file? Sure. So um, they had a, a platform commitment to um, review the supervised consumption services um, based on some complaints by people that reside in those areas uh, about the services. And so um, they did launch a review panel um, that they appointed with uh, different people to travel around the province and visit the services and uh, talk to people that had an interest in the topic. And this was the the panel. It was uh, um, addictions and mental health assist associate minister Jason Luan was he was he was involved in the appointment of the panel. And can you can you talk about a little bit about, about some of the key player political players who are involved in it now? So. Um, I think when the panel was first announced and the membership was named and the mandate was clearly defined, a lot of people uh, in health expressed concern because um, the panel was supposed to review the topic of supervised consumption services. And, you know, I don't think it's a bad idea to have a fulsome discussion about these services and what they contribute uh, to society and how they can be helping people or maybe if they're caught, you know, if there's issues associated with them to uncover those. But the mandate was very clearly uh, written down to exclude uh, the potential health benefits of the services. So um, the panel was explicitly directed not to consider the extent to which these services could be saving lives or improving health of um, people who are using them. And so, you know, I think that gives you a clear indication of what we are expecting the report to see. To see. So um, they did, the scope was really focused on socioeconomic benefits, but with a real emphasis on the idea of what do people that don't use these services think about them. So it was very much, uh, I mean, I, I, I read through the report. I've read a lot of the media coverage. Um, I've been following uh, Associate Minister Luan's tweets. 
Um, it seemed very much that they were focused on collecting the negative. And I mean, obviously there's, you know, well, people will have legitimate criticisms and legitimate um, arguments for mm-hmm. or against the way these programs are, are implemented in their community. Um, I mean, I, I personally, I mean, I support these programs. So personally, I, you know, I, I would feel uh, if there was one open in, in, if I lived in a neighborhood that had one of these facilities, you know, I might, I, I might feel differently because I, because I live closer to it. That said, I mean, in a lot of these neighborhoods, I mean, I live in, in central Edmonton and a lot of this, you know, I mean, drug use is happening anyway. Mm-hmm. It's happening, as you mm-hmm. said before, it's happening in the back alleys. It's happening in, in, the, in the public washrooms. Um, this is providing a space where people can do it safely in an environment that's, that's, more, that's a lot more contained. But it seemed that this report was very much focused on, or the panel's mandate was very much focused on, uh, on finding the, the, the least politically palatable elements of this program and then, and then going forth and, and I don't know, I, I would say... Uh, 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 defaming the, uh, the the work that these people are doing and the work that these these organizations are doing in in a very political manner. Yeah, I think that the report served the purpose of being a political document to discuss a policy decision, and um, it captured to with varying degrees of quality uh, different you know aspects of potential concerns related to the services. Um, but I, I think, too, if we're just kind of removing the politics from it and just evaluating it based on uh, method- methodology and kind of like a credible analysis or if they employed, you know, not all governments are going to employ a scientific approach, obviously, um, but even just like using a credible approach that mm-hmm. could be replicated and uh, validated, this report did not do that. And I think that's what's, to me, very disappointing. Uh, I'm all for having a debate about this topic. I've been debating this topic for many years, but I think when we're not providing the best available information and we're doing it in a way that is predetermining um, people's views and uh, the outcomes, it's really doing a disservice um, to a very complicated issue that is, um, frankly, a life and death matter. Yeah. This episode of the Dave Berta podcast is brought to you by Snow and Tell, the Winter City podcast. You can't change the weather, but you can change how you feel about it. This podcast explores how the right attitudes can uncover the opportunities and potential in winter cities. Let's take a listen. It's not a spoiler alert. Winter is going to be here for a good chunk of the year every single year. For some people, the very thought of winter is enough to send chills down their spine. But for others, winter is a season full of beauty, of adventure, of racing down the ski hill or snuggling by a roaring fire. I don't want to be inside during the winter. A season of contrast, light and dark, fire and ice, cold and warmth, a season full of potential. Part of the lighting design process is making the informed decision of not to illuminate something. If we have everything lit, then it just might look like a greenhouse where we're all tomatoes trying to produce work. And every day, more and more cities and people are coming around to seeing the possibilities of winter. The way that the city streets are being used is changing. I'm Sue Holdsworth. And I'm Isla Tanaka. Welcome to Snow and Tell, the Winter City Podcast. Together, we'll talk to specialists and thought leaders. We'll hear stories from everyday people just like you about their wintry trials and tribulations, triumphs and transformations. We can't change the weather, but we can change how we feel about it, how we design for it, play in it, thrive in it. I mean, we're all jubilant when we have a little exercise. 
We can hibernate or we can choose to change our thinking and actually plan to make winter a better experience for everyone. There is no such thing as bad weather. It's bad clothing. Join us as we learn how to make our cold cities cool. Find Snow and Tell, the Winter City podcast on your favorite podcast service or online at wintercityedmonton.ca slash podcast. I've learned over 70 years how you can get along really well outside in Edmonton, no matter what the season is. Find Snow and Tell on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it online at wintercityedmonton.ca slash podcast. That's wintercityedmonton.ca slash podcast. This episode of the Dave Berta Podcast is also brought to you by InVentures, a chance to connect with the best and brightest in global innovation. Join over 4,000 creative and curious minds on the frontier of innovation. Hear more than 250 speakers on six different program tracks, including healthier living and broader thinking. InVentures connects entrepreneurs and startups with venture capitalists, angel investors, service providers, and thought leaders. The conference includes an education track for students, too. Alberta Innovates is making all of this possible in Calgary from June 3rd to June 5th. Tickets are only $399 if you buy before the end of April. If you're a student, you can get a ticket for just $199. Get your tickets today at adventurescanada.com. That's I-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S Canada.com. I, I thought I thought that um, uh, Keith Keith Jaron in the Edmonton Journal had a good column this morning, uh, released and through Post Media, uh, talking about how this panel, the, the panel's report, and the panel seemed to be so focused on trying to uh, uh, discredit um, the work that these facilities were doing. They didn't focus on that. They didn't focus on the types of solutions like permanent supportive housing and the types of things that would types of programs uh, that would help. Uh, individuals who are using these facilities, using these clinics, uh, actually, um, you know, actually help recover and actually give give them uh, a leg up. Yeah, it's interesting because homelessness was actually explicitly ruled out of scope. See, that is yeah totally by the nuts. rule <laughs> or totally, by the totally panel nuts. or the mandate of the panel, and it's unfortunate because really the intervention itself, mm-hmm. like it's been around since the '80s. It was developed in Europe. It's designed to respond to the problem of public injection drug use, which is primarily concentrated amongst people who are homeless or street involved. So to take the context of homelessness out of the review to me is already inhibiting the potential to have a, uh, you know, a comprehensive and um, intelligent discussion about the topic, because really there's so much of substance use um, related harm that is driven by these underlying social determinants Mm -hmm. by not having a place to use substances, by not having an income, by um, historical you know, trauma, intergenerational trauma, uh, discrimination, stigma, like all these bigger pictures or issues contribute to substance related harm. And they frankly contribute to social disorder, to crime. And to just say that we can't talk about those things that's not in our scope is um, very difficult because it doesn't allow you to really understand the issue. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, I thought with the, I mean, on the, on the, on the issue of housing, I mean, I feel that in Alberta, we've gone, we take two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back, especially around the issue of, uh, around the, the, the idea of housing first and the types of programs that, that we have nonprofit organizations and funders in this city and in this province who work and have actually got, you know, actually permanently house people through these programs. We know this type, these types of programs work, uh, yet it seems it's very, uh, it's, 
it's staccato depending on whether the government will will actually uh, actually support them on any given day or any given year. It's we have one government that will 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 praise it and put pour a lot of funding, and then the next government it's it's not not a political focus mm-hmm. anymore. And it's it just seems like we have we have the solutions, we have the tools to deal with some of these problems, and. Uh, I mean, this is only one part of it, but they seem just kind of hell bent on 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 uh, on politically making it continuing to make it unpalatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's certainly there doesn't appear to be a big appetite to deal with these bigger social order or so- social disorder, um, you know, and social determinant kind of issues. I think too, if you look at the report, they the methods they use do not allow for you to disentangle the idea that you know. Um, the problems observed around SCS, for example, things like uh, garbage or debris on the ground, um, you know, uh, homeless people circulating in the area, like that was listed as a concern, um, petty crime, things like that. Like, there's no way for the review to disentangle whether that's caused by a supervised exception service or caused by homelessness, right? Yeah. And frankly, you know, I think if you look at the preponderance of evidence, you would conclude that if we didn't have a large population of people who are homeless in the mm-hmm. inner city, then we would likely not have a lot of those issues, right? Irrespective of substance use in society. Um, so it's really unfortunate that there doesn't appear to be an appetite to address homelessness because really at the end of the day, if we want to see safer communities, um, you know, where there's less crime, where hom- like homeless people themselves are often vic- victimized as well. Mm-hmm. Like if we want people to be safe um, and, you know, to get well and to address some of the underlying like mental health and other concerns they may have, like the first step is to house them. And um, that doesn't just have like a transformative and obviously life-saving impact for the people that are getting housing, but it also is makes our whole community safer, right? Mm-hmm. Because people aren't left to struggle on the streets and just do their best to survive. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and it, it all, I mean, you, the thing about this issue is that, that you can argue it from a, I mean, we're talking about, talk about homelessness and substance abuse is you can talk about it from, um, from a more kind of compassionate social perspective, but you can also, I mean, I've seen conservatives talk about this all the time and Ron Nebone, um, uh, an economist from, from Calgary has been, been talking about, uh, housing first and how much these programs actually, if you're looking at it from a fiscal conservative standpoint, these programs actually save money mm-hmm. because you're not, you're not, uh, uh collecting the cost. These, these people aren't accessing, uh, other programs if, if they do have permanent supportive housing and they're able, they are able to, uh, to get the support they need. They're not accessing the programs. They're not, the other programs are not, uh, they're not uh, um, getting caught up in the in the criminal justice system. They're not, you know, mm-hmm. they're not getting ca- caught up in other programs. They're far cheaper to implement than yeah. it is to pay the cost Absolutely. of not implementing yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, so they're ultimately a fiscally conservative strategy. And it's, you know, it's if you think of the return on investment and if you think about the long-term savings, it's like it is, and frankly, the human suffering that goes along yeah. with leaving people to struggle. Absolutely. It's really uh, mind-boggling that we can't find a way to get this done, especially in Edmonton, where we have the municipal government and the federal government uh, ready to pay and put in their portion of the funding. So what's looking at the, I mean, we've talked a lot about the provincial government. We talked a bit about the feds, but where does the municipal government play in on this? So the city of Edmonton, how do, how do they play in on, how do, how do they fit this in? This is a really good this? question. So, um, if you just read the review report and kind of just followed the news, 
um, you may not get a good understanding of how much work happens behind the scenes to resolve some of the, you know, challenges that occur um, related to homelessness, poverty, and substance use in the inner city area of Edmonton. So um, when the supervised consumption services here were first set up, and there's four of them, three of them are based in the community, um, all one's at Boyle Street, one's Boyle Macaulay Health Center, and the other's at George Spady. Um, they're three small sites. They only have five booths each. And um, Boyle Street and Spady essentially trade off um, on hours. So Spady is primarily open at night. Boyle Street primarily covers, covers the day. Mm-hmm. And then Boyle Macaulay Health Center is attached to a primary care clinic. Okay. And they're open during the clinic's hours. Um, I think they might have a few hours here and there that are additional to that. Anyway, when those sites were set up, like obviously they're, you know, it's a new intervention. A lot of people have talked for a long time in our city about concern about, you know, new services being added to the inner city or this idea that we're putting too many there. So I think the city was quite sensitive to um, trying to do its best to like work through any challenges that could arise. And so the police are at the table. Um, Alberta Health Service is at the table. Uh, the city of Edmonton um, is there. They Actually, it's the city of Edmonton and Alberta Health Services that are co-chairing a community liaison committee, and they meet quarterly. Um, and there's representatives from all the uh, community leagues. Uh, rep- the service providers attend, so all the people that operate the SCS. Um, and then they have like business associations, like um, essentially the key stakeholders on this topic are mm-hmm. all around that table, and they meet quarterly to discuss any kind of emergent issues that might um, be arising and do their best to address uh, anything that comes up. Um, you see, re- reading the, re- the report from the review panel, I wouldn't have had any impression that something like that exists. That information would have certainly been submitted to them um, and discussed. So I'm not sure why it wasn't presented in the report, but I know that they did collect a lot of information and they met with, if you look at the report, there's a list of stakeholders they mm-hmm. met with. And so they would have had access to that. Um there's similar processes in Calgary and uh, similar tables in Lethbridge and uh, to, I'm not sure about the others. Oh, and in Grand Prairie, I'm not sure about uh, Red Deer. Okay. Okay. I was going to ask, what if if we have evidence that uh, supervised consumption sites work, that they actually save money in the long run, what is the... Maybe this is a question for you, Dave. What's the political motivation of not proceeding with them? <laughs> Like I know, I know that's a political question, but like, is it is it part of Jason Kenney's culture war, or like, what's the reason to not do it? I mean, conservatives opposing uh, uh, the creation of safe consumption sites is not something new. Like, this is something that uh, that conservative politicians in this country have done for for a long time. I think Rona Ambrose was minister, the federal minister of health when the when the federal government opposed it. So originally, it was Tony Clement, mm-hmm. and then it was okay. It was a long court battle. Um, uh, I mean, I think there were key constituent groups that the UCP was appealing to in the election. Probably and, and religious ones. Probably, yeah, probably. You know, maybe, maybe certain. Maybe. maybe. Uh, I mean, I'm. I don't. I don't necessarily think that 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 religiosity means you don't support these types of yeah. these types of programs. Um, but I mean, the, you know, religious groups definitely fall into are a key part of the UCP's you know, voting base. I think in Edmonton, it's public knowledge that uh, the Chinatown and Area Business Association took the three community-based SCS uh, to court. They applied um, to federal court to have an injunction or um, basically to have to reverse the minister's um, exemption decision. So the federal minister granted those three sites an exemption. And that court case was heard in, uh, I think it was the end of 2018. 
And the ruling came out in 2019 and the federal court found that they were given due process in um, or like the minimal sta- like requirements for pro- due process uh, was granted to them by the federal government and that they're, um, they did have an ability to ex- express their concerns as part of the consultation process. And um, the federal court dismissed their application. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, th- I think that in, in politically, I think there's points to be gained by uh, attacking the, these types of programs. I mean, I think there's there's a perception and and a perception that's been purposely put out, misconstrued, um, or, or or ideas that have been ideas that have been purposely put out there that these are sites where people are collecting free drugs or people are you know like I mean you see this stuff online you see 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 it on Twitter you see the the kind of the comments from regular people who you know may be conservatives or they may may just not understand the issue or they may not be exposed to this type of these types of of, uh, of health issues in their you know, addiction issues in their own lives that they know of. Um, so I think there, I mean, I think there are political points to gain by attacking this. I mean, the, the, the thing that like really concerns me and, and frustrates me is that, that, I mean, people's lives are dependent, you know, the people's lives are, are dependent on the, on these types of programs. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, if you do, I don't know whether they, I mean, this will be my, my next question for you, Elaine, but I, if they do shut down these facilities, I mean, I would say, I think people will die. Mm-hmm. Uh, because these types of, of of safe places won't be won't be available, won't mm-hmm. be accessible. So, what is next for for CSC in, in Alberta after that's, this re- after this after this review panel? Uh, that's a good question. So, I would also just back up and say, to be fair, I do think that as a society, um, we're all pretty much socialized to think, you know illegal drugs are bad they're mm. illegal because they're bad and um the response the proper response is to you know lock people up throw away the key chase after uh people who are using chase after traffickers and uh you know that's going to be our solution um unfortunately though the evidence like very clearly shows that those uh those approaches are especially when they're done in in isolation or overemphasized uh highly ineffective and the evidence is clear we have never had this many people dying from overdose in our history and so you know obviously people are getting access to drugs Mm -hmm. and they're running into trouble with drugs um but so they're not only ineffective but there's also a lot of evidence to show that um criminalizing people and stigmatizing them like we do is really counterproductive and Mm -hmm. it's harming their health and it's not helping them uh connect to services and get better so um you know it is I do. I have met many conservatives that actually do support the mm-hmm. idea of supervised acceptance services because they recognize it's a pragmatic strategy. It saves money, mm-hmm. um, and I hope that as people become more aware of this topic and just get a more nuanced understanding of it, if they're willing to seek out that information, uh, that they could learn a lot. And I think that it's very difficult if, once you know about this topic and you know the evidence behind it to not support the services. And actually, a really good example of this is um, Ben Perrin. He's a professor at the That's University right. of yeah. British Columbia. And he's been, um, he wrote an op-ed in the Calgary Herald and he actually has a book coming out, but he was a policy advisor to Stephen Harper while they were um, pursuing their <laughs> tough on drugs, you know, anti-harm reduction uh, political agenda. And he has since um, had an opportunity to learn about the implications of those policies in terms of increasing harm in society and uh, has completely done a 180. And so I think... Uh, listening to I'm looking forward to reading his book I think listening to him speak it's really interesting and I think he it's people like him that have the potential to really help win hearts and minds on this topic because he you know advanced an agenda that was completely opposed to this and now um, is some of the strong like one of the strongest supporters for uh, you know vocal supporters for SCS. 
That's very interesting. I'll post a link on the uh, in the show notes to uh, an op-ed or a column that he wrote. I think it was, might have been in the National Post. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or McLean's. Yeah, I thought it was the Herald, but it could the Herald. Have been. Okay, I'll yeah, yeah. I'll I'll, uh, I'll find it and I'll include a link. Um, so what's next? Back right, going back. Yeah. What's what's next for for SCS in Alberta? Uh, my understanding is that uh, all of the serv- so the government is taking the panel's report under advisement, um, and they will be formulating a response and um, a path forward as they see fit. And uh, in the interim, the sites, uh, according to the provincial government, have had their funding extended um, for another six months. So um, essentially, the kind of waiting game continues um i think though for the sites um like they're gonna keep doing the work right like Mm -hmm. that doesn't nothing changes there's still people overdosing and they're still providing you know emergency care uh they're providing access to housing supports uh to social work and to counseling and they're doing their best to help people in a system that's really under-resourced and uh and um in a context where we're missing like a lot of key supports that people need, like housing. What, uh, what happens if they shut these down? Like what will be the material impact on those neighborhoods, on society, on in- individual drug users who, are, who need help? So in Edmonton, um, and it's important to set the record straight, I think, because uh, if you read the report, it's not always, not totally highlighted to the full extent that it could be um in edmonton we've seen that uh the crime rates around the sites have gone down so the police have concluded that there has been they say no impact um on crime Hmm. uh in the immediate vicinities uh there's been the city of edmonton has reported uh that they've observed at least in some of the neighborhoods around the scs's uh declines in needle debris so you know and it's intuitively it makes sense right because people are going there they can use substances they have safe disposal facilities that they leave used um, supplies in. And so, um, and then most importantly, uh, the provincial data is very clear and it shows that over 4,000 people have been, um, had an intervention for an overdose. So that's either the administration of oxygen to prevent uh, an overdose that's beginning from getting worse or um, the administration of naloxone. And, uh, or sorry, and when I say um, there's been 4,000 overdose events that have been addressed. So not necessarily 4,000 people, but just the, uh, uh, you know, event. So even if you assume that only a small fraction of that is um, potentially a fatality, I think that it's very clear. It's hard to argue that this closing the sites wouldn't um, result in taking away a life-saving intervention. And potentially we could see, especially in the areas around the supervised exception services, um, an increase in death. Um Another point to make too that isn't really well known is that the sites provide access to naloxone kits. In fact, like the SCSs and the harm reduction programs in Alberta distribute over or very close to like 50% of the kits. So that's a very core intervention for overdose prevention as well. And so I'd worry that in um, if harm reduction program budgets are cut, that we wouldn't be as effective in getting those kits out. And again, that's, you know, there's actually some pretty good data out of BC. Um, it's modeling data, but they looked at um, what the potential impact of these interventions has been on averting deaths. And in BC, they found that um, providing naloxone kits, uh, providing su- supervised services, or they call them overdose prevention sites there, um, as well as providing access to opioid agonist treatment, which is medication treatment for opioid use disorder, uh, has collectively averted like over 2,000 deaths. So um Unfortunately, we don't have all the tools we need to end the overdose epidemic, but we absolutely can't be getting rid of the ones that we do have, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, 
those tools are so critical and they're just like a core part of the overdose response. And without them, I think our death rates would be a lot higher. So one of the things we've heard from the provincial government is that there's been too much focus on harm reduction and not enough focus on the recovery side of, of, uh, of this picture. From, from your perspective in terms of your experience with, the, with this type, these types of programs, what do you make of that comment? I personally don't think that that's a fair assessment of what's been happening in the last several years in Alberta. Um, historically, harm reduction in this province, as well as across Canada, has been significantly underfunded. Uh, and interventions we have to prevent harm from substance use have just not existed or have been, you know, not able to reach all the people that they need to reach. So there was an emphasis on what we call in public health, scaling up those interventions to increase access to them. Uh, and certainly since, you know, 2016, 2017, there's been a lot of provincial investment in that area, but that has coincided with significant um, investments in treatment. And in fact, Alberta has, uh, exponentially increase the number of people that are accessing the gold standard for opioid use disorder treatment, um, which is either um, medication treatment with Suboxone or with methadone. Um, The scientific evidence is very clear that those are the frontline treatments for opioid use disorder. And um, the more people that can be connected to them, um, the better they're shot at recovery and the better they're shot at um, not dying from overdose death because uh, your risk, if you're on those medications and stabilized, your risk of overdose death is much lower. And that is that a type of program that the provincial government would provide? Yes, and it has been funded here. Um, there's a mix of, of delivery options. So uh, there's some Alberta Health Services clinics as well yeah. as uh, primary care. There's a lot of funding went to primary care, like PCNs, to okay. train physicians to provide uh, prescribe those medications. And also um, some private kind of uh, clinics that focus on treating opioid use disorder with those medications. Okay, and are these in in communities across the province? Okay. Uh, yeah, to varying degrees. Um, one really cool initiative that actually got funded under uh, Alberta Health Services in the last couple of years was the uh, virtual opioid dependency program, which is a telehealth uh, option for, so there's a lot of people in um, scattered across, you know, more rural parts of Alberta mm-hmm. that wouldn't have access to a physician or a pharmacy to get the medications dispensed regularly, okay. or they would have more challenges in connecting. Mm-hmm. And so at least um, these programs uh, connect people to physicians via telehealth. And so they can get their um, prescriptions where they live and they don't have to travel long distances to get access. So yeah, basically um, (laughs) there's been a lot of focus on other parts of the response. And beyond that too, I think it's really important to note that uh, the idea that harm reduction and recovery or harm reduction and treatment are um, a dichotomy (laughs) is not an accurate understanding of the situation. Like harm reduction and treatment go hand in hand. People who work in harm reduction want people who are using substances to be healthier. And Mm -hmm. in many cases that involves being absent from drugs. Um, So, you know, a lot of work in harm reduction is making connections to people. It's helping them feel like they can trust the system, that they can trust the person that's helping them and then helping them find a path to wellness and a path to recovery, how they define it. Uh, it's not uh, either or it's mm-hmm. we need both and there has been some encouraging investments in you know the treatment system from this uh, uh, current government like I give them credit for prioritizing addiction mental health like mm-hmm. the system has been historically underfunded and yeah. we definitely need all kinds of different options for people but when it comes to um, the overdose epidemic and an overdose response um, our best bets are on three interventions uh, medication treatment for opioid use disorder, uh, naloxone kits, 
and supervised consumption services. And if we want to prevent death, that's where we need to invest money. And so I really hope to see those investments maintained. Well, we can hope for a, uh, a, and hope and wish for a uh, compassionate and, and uh, to borrow a, a conservative a term used by the conservatives, a, a common sense approach to dealing with this type of issue. And, and in, in terms of helping people, these types of people, helping these people who need, need this kind of help. Yep. If compassion and common sense are our guiding values, then I don't see those interventions going anywhere. Well, that, that's it for this episode. Thank you very much to Dr. Elaine Hishka for joining us today and sharing your knowledge, your expertise, and, uh, and your thoughts on what, uh, what's happening with, with safe consumption services and the government's recent report. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you here today, Elaine. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. And I, I'm a longtime listener, and I really appreciate uh, your podcast being willing to t- talk about this issue because it's a, you know, it's a, it's a controversial topic and it's sensitive and um, there's a wide range of opinions about it. And so it's really nice to be able to um, have a, you know, a more fulsome discussion. Great. Mm-hmm. And it's, it is a topic that a lot of Albertans will be hearing about this week. Um, so it is pretty, it is pretty topical and we're great. You on, on such short notice, we're, we're very, very pleased that you could join us. So thanks so much. Uh, thanks to the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, for supporting the show. Thank you to our producer, Adam Rosenhart, for all the great work he does and making us sound so good on this podcast. Uh, please send us your feedback or ask any questions you have for the next episode. You can get us on Twitter and Instagram at, at DaveBerta or on the DaveBerta Facebook page, or you can send us an email at podcast at DaveBerta.ca. Thanks for listening. <laughs>